It's so great to see you today, and uh, so many family members here. It's kind of uh, uh, Independence Day is the great exchange. We send half of our people out to family, and then you all bring half of your people back in. So it's so great to see all of you here today, and uh, I want to encourage you to open up your Bible to Psalm chapter 51. If you don't have a Bible, if you forgot it at home, there's a red Bible floating around. Uh, you can get on Wi-Fi and use a tablet or a smartphone. We just like your eyes to be on a page. And so um, so we do celebrate this today. A couple notes before we jump into to our summer series in the Psalms. Uh, first of all, uh, as I announced last week and talked about, um, we, and as Doug mentioned this morning, we are on track to move in sometime in September into our new space over there. We've been working hard with the Samuels group to get designs done and city permits finished up and uh, we really hope to be able to uh, see some progress here uh, soon in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and we also announced last week, and would just remind you today, that we had toyed with the idea of a name change, but like I talked about last week, uh, after listening to a whole bunch of great feedback and some really funny feedback in the process, we uh, decided that just to kind of go with our original plan, and we're going to continue to be Waukee Community Church, and the building next door is going to be known as the Avenue, and, and that's how we're going to proceed. So uh, just if you were wondering about that, didn't hear that announcement last week, that's where we're at. I also want to talk really briefly about Independence Day. I, I, always, I always find it interesting on the Sunday of Independence Day weekend, because I'm keenly aware of the fact that uh, as a church, God has called us his people and we're citizens of heaven. And yet God puts us in this country here and we are also citizens of this country. And so while we don't want to worship this country at all, we do want to honor and celebrate the freedoms that God has given us to be the people of God here to do his kingdom work. And that's what we celebrate this weekend. As we look at Psalm 51, I think you're going to find that appropriate as we talk through this great psalm of contrition of David. I have a question for you today. Have you ever been confronted by someone about something that you did wrong? Um, I remember a few times in my life when I've been confronted, and I haven't always responded the best to that. Uh, I remember one time I was talking to my accountability partner. We talk weekly on the phone. And uh, I was ranting about a particular situation I had in my neighborhood. And he just quietly paused and said, Hey, Dave, have you thought about actually talking to your neighbor? No. <laughs> you know, because that's kind of what Scripture tells us to do. Oh, stop it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of how I was. Or, or my, my wife, you know, like, God bless her. She, uh, he's put her in my life as my partner in life. And there have been times where she's had to call me out on stuff. And you know, my problem is I want Clarissa to think that I am, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, that I walk on water, that you know, I, and the reality is she knows I don't. And I don't always respond the best. I, I remember one time my youngest son, Malachi, well, we, I was in a conversation with someone and I said, oh, shut up. And Malachi says, daddy, we don't say shut up. <laughs> Oh, shut up, Malachi. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. I didn't do that. Um, and then recently, a friend of mine, we, we were talking about me sort of being missional and injecting myself into someone's life uh, by eating a, uh, a particular food with this person that I don't really like. 
And uh, I was just going, you know, it's really hard because I don't like that food at all. And, uh, and, and my friend Peter back there looked at me and said, Dave, it's not about you. <laughs> and I said, oh, come on, Peter, that's my line. Stop using that on me. I don't know. When, when you're confronted, how do you respond? Like, I don't always respond the best. How do you respond? Are you indignant? How dare that person accuse me of that? Are you offended? Do they really think that I'm the kind of person that would do that? Are you defensive? Hey, I have my reasons. Stay out of it. Are you dismissive? Oh, it's no big deal. You know, don't worry about it. Just go away and mind your own business. Or do you deflect? You know, you change the subject. Hey, look, there's a squirrel over there. Like, what, how do you handle it when people confront you? Because honestly, in our culture, we live in, in a kind of a live and let live society, and confrontation really doesn't happen that often. It really doesn't. And very little healthy confrontation happens outside of a courtroom. The phrase of the day is, you know, hey, don't judge me. So it's socially unacceptable to confront anyone about anything. Now, I'm not going to today address the issue of confronting each other in the body of Christ. That's a whole nother sermon in and of itself. But it does remind me of a simple question. We have a hard enough time when other people confront us on something. How do we handle it when God, through his Holy Spirit, confronts us on something? Because that is the question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 51. That is the question that addresses us when we read this psalm of contrition that David wrote. And when we read this, it, it forces us to ask the question, how do we react when confronted by the Holy Spirit? If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have a faith that he died for your sins in your place and that he rose from the dead and that he sent his spirit amongst us, if you are a, a believer and follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And he is going to confront you. How do you respond? With, with indignance? With offense? With justifying excuses? Do you just dismiss his leading altogether? Or do you respond with contrition by humbly accepting the truth? Now, before we can dive into Psalm 51, I need to set the background for Psalm 51 for you a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 12 gives us the backdrop of Psalm 51. And in 2 Samuel 12, you may remember this story where uh, David is caught in the act of adultery and murder with Bathsheba. And the very words that David gives us in 2 Samuel really give us a great example and a backdrop for what we're going to read here in Psalm 51. And look at these words that David says. This is how he responds. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Now you remember the story probably. David was looking over his balcony one day and he saw this gorgeous woman bathing on her deck and he said, oh, she will be mine. And he went and he had her brought to his palace and he slept with her knowing that she was a married woman. And later she sends him a note that says, hey, I'm pregnant. So David goes through a, a, a big whole circus of activity to try to cover up what he's done. It ends by him killing her husband, having him murdered 
so that his sin would be covered up. And David thinks after Uriah is killed that his sin was covered up and nobody knew, but God knew. Nathan the prophet, sometime later, is sent by God to David. And Nathan tells David this story or illustration that David thinks is a real story. And it's simply a story about a, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had a lot of sheep and the poor man only had one. And the poor man loved his sheep dearly. And the rich man took the poor man's sheep and had it killed and served up to a guest. And David, when he heard this story, got so angry. He said, we're going to find this guy and make him pay. And then Nathan says to him, you are the man. And David knew immediately what he was talking about. And David's response to Nathan, to God, is I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David didn't get offended. He didn't get indignant. He didn't get defensive. He didn't dismiss it. He didn't justify himself. In humble contrition, he replied, I have sinned against the Lord. So Psalm is David's psalm of response, of contrition. Now, when we say contrition here, we don't mean sort of the Roman Catholic idea of contrition, which is a little bit more complicated. By contrition, we just simply mean the common understanding about a sorrowful reaction to wrongdoing, to sin. See, when God convicts us of sin, we learn how to respond from this song, from this prayer of David. We can learn this. And so today, I want to answer this simple question. How should we respond when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin? And we can learn this. And we can walk away from this psalm being encouraged to live in contrition as followers of Jesus. So, I see a few things here that I want to talk through in this text about how we should respond when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we see David do when he is convicted of his sin is he pleads for mercy. The very first thing he does is he pleads for mercy. Look at the very first part of the psalm. He says, have mercy on me, O God. A simple definition of mercy, of course, would be not getting what you do deserve. I mean, that's a a simple way of looking at it. Pleading to not get what you do deserve. The psalmist knows he's done wrong. He knows, David knows that he deserves death. I mean, he's a murderer. He deserves death. He knows it. So he pleads for mercy. There's two parts to to pleading for mercy. One, it's acknowledging what you've done, that you've done something wrong that deserves punishment. The second part of mercy is pleading to avoid the consequence. And David does both in that simple phrase, have mercy, oh God, have mercy. David does both. And then he cries out and gives the basis for which he thinks he should receive mercy or thinks he might receive mercy. He says, have mercy on me, oh God, according to your unfailing love. This unfailing love is such a great word in the Hebrew. It's the word hesed. We talk a lot about hesed. When you come to the book of Ruth, the word hesed is all over the book. And it's not just unfailing love. It's not just love. Hesed is a word that calls upon God's covenantal faithfulness. God Almighty made a covenant with his people. And and God made a covenant with David. And what David is going to do 
is call upon this God who loves unwaveringly and faithfully keeps his promises. To make, he says, he says, God, you made a promise to me. I know you won't forget that. It's in your character. Now look what he does. He continues. He says in the second half of verse one, he says, blot out my transgressions, wash away my sins or all my iniquity, excuse me, and cleanse me from my sins. Uh, this is a literary tool that probably we don't really think about when we write too much, but David is using a common Hebrew tool here of repetition. Notice the three words he uses to talk about being cleansed. He says, blot out, wash away, and cleanse. And then look at, he uses three different words for his offense or his sin. He says, transgressions, all my iniquity, and my sin. These three-part repetition is just a simple way uh, that a Hebrew um, poet would say, explain the totality of something. You see, what David recognizes here is, 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 that, is that his sin is, and the scope of his sin is deep. He's saying not just, well, I suppose, God, I'll give you this one point. I did a little something wrong. He is saying the totality of my sin, I need to be completely washed and cleansed from. And he's saying, all I can do in this situation, because my sin is so encompassing, all I can do is plead for mercy. And so David does it. He comes and he pleads for mercy. My favorite story about mercy involves my daughter, Anna, and it happened when she was four years old. And some of you have heard this story before because I love this story so much. I tell it often. When my daughter, Anna, who is now 14, was four years old, she had a little issue. Uh, she was potty trained, but uh, sometimes she was not completely potty trained, apparently. At four years old, she'd be outside. It's a beautiful summer day. She'd be running around. And if she had to go to the bathroom, that's a lot of work to go back inside, you know? So she would just be your pants, you know? And I think Clarissa had done so much Anna laundry that summer. Like, she was just up to her eyeballs with it. And she clearly told Anna, Anna, <laughs> in so not so these words, but something like, uh, you better not ever do this again. <laughs> like, I am at my breaking point. If you do this again, you're in big trouble. I happened to come home for lunch once that summer day, and uh, I was eating lunch, and the kids were playing outside. And as I left to go back to the office, I walked out the front door, and Anna is this four-year-old little girl is running in the front door, and she meets me bawling. Tears are flowing and I'm thinking, you know, she got hurt or something. And I bent down and I pulled her in close and I said, Hannah, what's wrong? Daddy, I pee-peed my pants. <laughs> and she knows what's coming and I know what's coming. And as I looked through the door, I knew full well that uh, my wife was at her breaking point. But I also love my daughter dearly. And so I, I leaned down with a smile on my face, knowing that I got to go back to work. Uh, I leaned down with a smile on my face and I whispered something into Anna's ear. And she looked at me with big eyes, full of tears, but big eyes. She completely understood what I said. She ran in the house and I hear her run up to mommy and she says, mommy, I pee peed my pants. Have mercy. <laughs> And Clarissa just catches my eye as I'm walking out the door. 
But what Anna understood as a four-year-old, or maybe she didn't understand, is she was doing a couple things. First of all, she knew what she deserved. And maybe unknowingly or unconsciously, she also knew she had a mother who was filled with love and compassion. You see, when we plead for mercy, we're pleading on a God who has unfailing love. He's like that. We know we've done wrong and we plead, God have mercy. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, that's the first thing we should do is plead for mercy. The second thing we want to do then is remove the blinders. Remove the blinders. So blinders are a term that sometimes we talk about. We don't really think what they mean. Blinders are used by people who train horses uh, and people who race horses. They put the blinders on the horse on the side. And the reason that they do this is so that the horse can only look ahead. They don't want the horse distracted by other horses running around it. So they put the blinders on so the horse can only look ahead. Sometimes you and I have blinders on in our lives. We have blinders to our own sin. We don't even want to think about it. We ignore it. We put up the blinders so we don't acknowledge that it's even there. Sometimes we get so caught up in what we're doing that we don't stop to ask if God's pleased with this. Sometimes we have blinders because we're callous. We've just done a particular sin so many times that our heart has just gotten calloused. Or maybe we're just hard-hearted. We're just saying, God, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care what you think. Maybe we have pride. We don't want to admit we're wrong. Maybe we have a failure to honestly evaluate ourselves, and we're just going, we're just going through life really not asking hard questions. But what David does here in the text is he rips off his blinders. Look at verse three. David says, for I know my sin. I know my transgressions, he says, and my sin is always before me. David rips off his blinders and has complete awareness of his own sin. He forces himself to have complete awareness of what he's done. Up to this point, David's put blinders on. He's no, he knows that he has taken this woman, that he's committed adultery, that he's committed murder. He knows that he's done these things and he sort of puts up the blinders and says, I'm not gonna deal with it. At this moment, when he's convicted of sin, he rips off the blinders and he has complete awareness. And then he acknowledges the extent of his sin. Look at verse four. He says, against you, Against you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only. Now, it's important to realize here, David is not ignoring the sin that he's done to Bathsheba. And he's not ignoring the sin that he's done to Uriah. And he's not ignoring the sin he's done to these people. He's just acknowledging that ultimately all sin is a sin of offense against God. He removes the blinders and see what he, sees what he's done to Bathsheba and to Uriah. But then he also sees that ultimately when we sin against other people, we're sinning against God. And then David rips off the blinders by acknowledging the depths of his own depravity. Look at verse five. Surely... I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Theologians use this verse to talk about a concept called total depravity. It's simply the idea that as human beings, we inherit a sin nature when we're born. 
We can thank Adam for that, the Bible says, that we get our sin nature from Adam. And so we have this. We inherit this sin nature. We were born needing to be redeemed. And David's thought here is maybe not to unpack that level of theological sophistication. What David's thought here is to say this. I've been a sinner as long as I can remember. I've been a sinner as long as I can remember. There was never a target. This darkness has been with me ever since I can remember. Let's be honest. David's taken off the blinders and just saying, let's look at my, the total aspect of all my sin that's laid before me. You know, what David is simply doing in one way is talking about asking an honest question. At Waukee Community Church, we often re reference something we call the map of transformation. The map of transformation is just a tool we developed to talk through how God transforms us. Um, Nick, put that picture up there of the map of transformation. Or not. The map of transformation has four pieces to it. It, it, it starts with a simple idea that we ask an honest question. We ask an honest question. That's the, way, that's the way transformation starts. That's what David is doing here. He's asking an honest question. He's saying, God, show me the depths of my own sin. He takes off the blinders. Here's a crazy thought for you. Have you ever invited someone to help you ask an honest question? That seems so strange to us. We have so much pride and, and, and so we, we've built a persona or image of our lives. But would we invite someone to say, would you look into my life and help me ask some really hard questions about me? You see, that's where transformation starts. That's what David understands. He removes the blinders. And then the third thing he does when he's convicted of sin, he pleads for mercy, he removes the blinders, and then the third thing he does is wash in the blood. He washes in the blood. Look at verse 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was a, a kind of plant that was traditionally used in the ancient Near East to do purification rituals. So David's just talking about being purified. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. David longs to be clean. He longs to be clean. He feels dirty because he is. He recognized that his sin has sort of created a dirtiness to him. Everybody wants to be clean at some point. I mean, maybe some of you just don't mind stinking, but most people want to shower at some point. They want to be clean. In fact, when we get really dirty, we clean. I remember one uh, time when... We were joking around, and with so many kids, we've had a lot of diapers in our house. And I remember a time where I, I had a, a full diaper, and I, I kind of threw it at one of my other kids and hit him in the back. And uh, they turned, and he, it was Nicholas, he turned and whipped it back at me. Um, and that diaper ripped open, and all that gel in the diaper just exploded all over me. I was just covered in grossness. And the very first thing I did... After I recovered to what happened, 
is I walked upstairs and I got in the shower and I scrubbed and I scrubbed. I wanted to be clean. There is a depth where we want to be clean. We like being clean. Now, some people like it more than others, but even as the kids, I remember my kids, some of them liked being clean more than others. You can see this picture here of Nicholas when he was uh, about two years old. And uh, I love that picture so much. He got in the mud and you can clearly see he's not happy. Um, 15 years later, here's my other son, Malachi. It was hand is dirty with sand. And he's much happier with it. You know, like he kind of likes this. And I love this picture. You know, there's a sense in which uh, we can laugh at stuff like this and talk about kids. But there is a sense in which we want to be clean. We want to be clean. And spiritually, David understands here that he wants to be clean. And David cries out for this. What David looked forward to, a Messiah coming, what David looked forward to, even though he didn't really understand what this meant, we can know fully because we can be clean of our sin in Jesus. We know when we come to Christ, in essence, the blood of Jesus that we just remembered today in this little cup, this blood is cleansing it cleans the deepest, darkest sin from us. And this is filled with hope and goodness. And here's the thing. Sometimes we think, well, I prayed, you know, I believe in Jesus. I did that whole thing. We never stop bathing in the blood. We never stop because we continually need it. And while there's never a sense in which we lose our salvation, there is a sense in which we constantly are reminded as sinful people that we long for the full extension of God's kingdom. And we continually wash in the blood. Every time you take communion, every time we come together, we're reminded again to wash anew in the blood. And this is hope, friends. This is hope. Our deepest, darkest things Jesus washes. He washes them. And when the Spirit convicts us of sin, not only do we plead for mercy and remove the blinders, but we wash in the blood, and then we seek restoration with God, and we find it. Look at verse 10. The fourth thing that happens is we seek restoration with God. Look at verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In verse 11, we were reminded clearly here that David is seeking restoration with God. In, ver in verse 11, he says, don't cast me away from your presence or take your spirit from me. Whenever I read this psalm, we must remind us of what David didn't have that we do in Christ. In, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and dwell on a chosen man or woman of God for a time, sometimes their whole life, sometimes just for a time. The Holy Spirit could come and go. In the New Testament, what Christ did for us and when he rose from the dead and broke the power of sin and death, he sent his spirit. God's spirit lives amongst us. We don't have to worry about the spirit of God just randomly leaving us. 
But we do see here what David wants is the joy of his salvation returned. He wants his joy back. Look at verse 12. That's you said, give me back the joy of my relationship with you. Back in Psalm 31, I think David is referencing the same event. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Have you ever had that experience where you knew you were doing something or living some way or doing something that God really didn't want, where you were ignoring the voice of the Spirit convicting you and you felt this misery and you couldn't even label it maybe? Have you ever had that experience? The good news is that through the blood of Jesus, we find restoration. We get it back. The joy of our salvation is freely offered to everyone through Christ. And so we seek restoration with God. And then fifthly, the fifth thing we do is we worship in brokenness. When we're convicted of sin, we worship in brokenness. Skip down to verse 13, if you would. Excuse me, verse 16. He says, God, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David understanding something profound, and especially since he lives prior to Jesus. And David understands something profound that a sacrifice was made to cover sins, but this could become a ritual. What God has always wanted is a broken heart. He wants a contrite spirit. He wants the men and women of God to come to him in brokenness. That's what verse 17 says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. David's not trying to throw out the sacrificial system that existed in the Old Testament. He's just saying, God doesn't just want a ritual. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. When you know your sin and when you long for the joy of restoration, you realize that there's nothing. And when you realize that there's nothing you can do to get that back on your own, there is a brokenness that happens. A contrite heart is a broken heart. It lays itself at the foot of the cross. When we have a broken heart, we lay ourselves at the foot of the cross, keenly aware that there's nothing we can do to cover over our own sin. We're keenly aware of this. And in brokenness, we cry out to God. And he meets us. And he meets us. It's interesting, we close then our psalm with verse 18 and 19. And this is a really interesting verse. Look at the verse with me. The psalmist says, In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to to delight you. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. These two verses don't really make sense with the rest of the psalm. The reason for this is, um, all of a sudden we have a change of thought and idea. Um, if you understand how the Psalms were put together, the Psalms were written independently. And then at some point, some God used sort of a Hebrew editorial team to arrange them in a proper order so that when you read through them, they, 
they make sense. There's an idea behind it. I posted a, a video on our Facebook page if you ever want to kind of get the idea of how all the Psalms were compiled for us. Um, these same editors here, moving, I believe, with the Spirit of God, fully inspired, added these two verses to this Psalm, making it complete. And the idea that these inspired words have for us is this. this they were looking at this Psalm and applying it to their generation. Their generation had been broken. The walls of Jerusalem had come down. They had been taken into captivity. And as a people, there was no sacrificial system. There was no, they were away from Jerusalem. It lay in ruins. And now the psalmist is saying, what David said also applies to you, people of God. And the idea he's taking here is that when God's people are contrite, there is hope. And he finds the hope in the sacrificial system being restored and the walls of Jerusalem being built up. And that's an appropriate closing for today because just as these verses are applied to the people of God, Israel, it was good and right for the, us to apply these verses to the people of God, the church. It's good for them, us to apply them to ourselves. And these verses are an invitation for us in repentance, in contrition, in brokenness to fall at the foot of the cross individually and corporately. Jerusalem had been destroyed and they longed for restoration. And he invites them into it just as God invites us as the church the psalm of contrition on this Independence Day weekend is not an invitation for our country. It's an invitation for the church. We apply them not to a post-exilic Jew Jew Jewish people, but to Christians in a post-Christian nation. And the first thing we have to find as the church is contrition. As a church, we confess our sins, each one of us. And when we individually ask God, when we invite him, we take off the blinders, when we individually step before him and say and invite him and say, God, what areas of sin in my life do I need to repent? And where do I need to bathe again in the blood of Christ? How we confess this is important. There are those uh, in, in this country and in other places that uh, look at the horrible events that happened in Orlando weeks ago, and they would blame those on Christians. Now, I think a lot of those accusations are unfair when we look at that. But I would ask us as a church, would we take a moment, just a moment to ask, is there even a hint of truth in what is said about us? Now, we may find the answer to be no, or in us individually, we may find the answer to be yes. Is there a seed of hatred or self-defense or despising in you uh, to people whom you might disagree? Is there a, a, a seed of that in, in us as the church? If we never ask the question, we don't allow the Spirit to work. Think about other situations in your life. We're called as a church to defend the defenseless, to care for those in need. Do we? If we never ask the question, 
We'll never know. We're called to step into a dark world and be the hope of Jesus. Do we? We're called not to be safe, but to step into dangerous places because we believe that God is bigger than anything we face. Do we? When we're critiqued by people who love us or don't love us, do we listen? When we're critiqued by our neighbors, maybe our family, do we listen? Psalm 51 begs us to ask these questions. And Psalm 51 invites us not to feel false guilt, but to simply ask the Holy Spirit to probe us. A few years ago, I had a chance to take a couple of my kids to Washington, D.C. Uh, it's a fantastic experience. Went into the Lincoln Memorial. Never, you know, you see all these pictures on TV. Maybe some of you have been there. You understand this. But I went inside the memorial and on the, both uh, walls, on the sides of where Abraham Lincoln's chairs, are inscriptions. And I found myself enthralled by a rather lengthy inscription in marble of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. And what he was addressing in this address, he was addressing a nation of mostly Christians, not the post-Christian nation in which we live. So what Abraham Lincoln said then could never be said by a president today. But we can learn much from his attitude of contrition. And we can apply this to ourselves, the people of God, if we look deeply. So I want you, as I read this, to listen to his attitude, not as a prescription for our country, but as an example for our hearts, an example of contrition. So in his second inaugural address, he talks about how no, both sides, the North and the South, can use the Bible to justify their own positions. And then he assumes an attitude of contrition. Listen to his words. In speaking of the Civil War, he says, taking just a section out of it. He says, neither party in the war expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes God's aid against each other. The prayers of both could not be answered, and neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom offenses cometh. If we shall suppose, Lincoln says, that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come. And if we also suppose that he gives both north and south this terrible war as, as the woe due to those by whom the offenses came, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills it continue, until the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether.
Lincoln saw the Civil War as a divine judgment on this nation for 250 years of slavery. And he repented and he pleaded for mercy. Will we, as the people of God, live with contrite hearts? Will we individually in the body of Christ listen to the voice of the Spirit? Would we in brokenness remove the blinders and plead for mercy? And would we cleanse in the wash in the cleansing blood and find beautiful restoration with God? His mercy is sufficient. His covenantal love is deep. And when we ask honest questions, he is there meeting us in our deepest hour. Would you pray with me? We want to invite the ushers to come forward. And on this Independence Day weekend, with contrite hearts, we come to you, Heavenly Father. We come to you asking that as you convict us, let us have the grace to respond rightly. Let us not respond in indignation. Let us not respond in offensiveness. Let us respond with contrite hearts. Would you give us the courage to ask really hard questions, God? And then would you give us courage as those washed in the blood of Christ to be the hands and feet of the kingdom of God, agents of what you're doing in this world. And we walk out of here today restored in the joy of our salvation, walking in the newness of this life with Christ. We celebrate the joy that you bring us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.